I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Cons Minds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 65, we read Trust in a Polarized Age by Kevin Vallier, published in 2020. And uh, Kevin Vallier is joining us now on the podcast. Uh, Kevin, thanks for being with us and uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm an associate professor of philosophy uh, at Bowling Green State University here in Northwest Ohio. Um, my interests lie primarily in uh, political philosophy, uh, f- politics and religion, um, which I did some of my early research on. And then I'm also uh, interested in philosophy, politics, economics, sort of the growing uh, uh, methodology and philosophy, political philosophy that draws on all three fields. Uh, and lately, I'm very interested in studying uh, trust and polarization and their relationship, both at a philosophical level, but also just the straight up empirical work on it as well. Because part of doing philosophy, politics, economics is bringing those different perspectives together to um, suggest reforms that I think can move things in the right direction. Because So that's kind of where I am at present, um, thinking thinking in terms of trust, polarization, and kind of interdisciplinary method for trying to figure out certain kinds of social questions, philosophy and the social sciences. Okay. So let's, uh, let's talk about, about trust in a polarized age then. Um, I gather from the book, we used to be more of a high trust society and Uh things have changed. How did that happen? Well, um, so just a little bit about how uh, we measure trust. It's measured through surveys. A lot of your economics readers will, uh, their eyebrows will go up because, you know, the economists tend to say you should pay more attention to what people do rather than what they say. Um, but um, these are pretty high quality surveys that have been done over the last 40, 50 years, well, mostly 40 years um, across the world. Um, they're published in top journals of all kinds. Um, so they ask people questions like a uh, standard trust question is, can most people be trusted or you, can you never be too careful in dealing with people? And it turns out that construct correlates in ways that sort of make sense of what you would ordinarily think, or again, with some surprises. Um, It turns out that the United States is the only major country where there seems to be a systematic non-random decline in social trust. So that is trusting most people in your society. And since the 70s, we've declined from around half of um, social trust. So the general social survey this past year was about 31%. Depending on which essay, um, which uh, survey you look at, that's a 15 to 20 point decline. Um, the importance of social trust is enormous. It has major good effects. And so that decline is kind of a disaster for us. Um, the decline in trust in government is different. Um, in the 50s and 60s, people were highly trusting of government, 70 to 80 percent. And today we're down to 20 percent. So the, the fall is much, much larger. But the nice thing, at least there, is that the consequences of losing political trust are a lot less disastrous than the consequences of losing social trust. But both forms of trust are down. And I think on net, losing both kinds of trust is problematic. Can you tell us about each kind? Uh, What's the difference between social trust and political trust? So social trust is trust that most people in your society will tend to do the right thing. 
So it's, it's not a political concept. It's, you know, I give the example a lot of people, you know, you're in traffic, right? And uh, how much can you count on people to uh, drive in a way that's sort of fair and safe, like whether people will let you merge into oncoming traffic or not? Um, and we have lots of social rules of that sort, you know, when people cut in line or don't take a bribe or don't rob you and so on. Um, those are the kinds of things we socially trust people to do. But political trust means trust in government, governmental institutions, and it gets targeted at things like Congress, the presidency, the Supreme Court, um, various administrative bodies like the CDC, which is taking, uh, I think, a tumble right now. Um, so, yeah, um, trust in institutions that are organized and engaged in coercion. That's what political trust is about. But social trust is about our trust in most people. Um, so so it's, it seems like I... I, I... I get why political trust declines. I mean, but to say it's down to 20% is, uh, that's pretty considerable. I mean, often, often we on the right, especially the libertarian leaning right get, get blamed for declining trust in government because we don't tend to trust government to do things right. But 20%, that sounds like, uh, even if that's Congress, I mean, that's everybody, right? I mean, if, if 20% of the country trusts Congress, that means it's left, right and center who are saying, I don't trust them. And how did we get to that state when we were riding so high 50 years ago or or 70 years ago? It's hard to know in this case whether it is um, a single trend or whether there are a bunch of hits where people just don't recover. So um, one of the precipitating events or two was Watergate plus the Vietnam War. Mm. So Watergate, it looks like, diminished trust uh, in the government quite a bit. And Vietnam, because so many people thought that the war was unjust. Um, and I think there was a bit of a cohort effect where young people became less trusting, um, like in the hippie generation saying, you know, don't trust anyone over 30. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, Gen X was less trusting than the boomers. Um, and then, you know, th- uh, things continued to slide, I think, from the left as they had the sense of there being more injustices than they had seen before, like with race and gender. Um, and um, also not always seeing things going in their direction with respect to economic equality. Whereas I think on the right, the government was still growing larger and larger and doing more and more. And people felt, you know, it wasn't performing well for that reason, especially in the 70s. Um, So I think there's a decline in trust, but the reasons it declined are different on different sides. Mm. Um, Another thing that's going on this whole time is we're starting to get polarization where people just don't trust the other side. So if you disaggregate from those, like you look at presidents, because most people don't know much about what Congress is doing um, because they don't know often what party's in power. But if you look at the president, then the fall in trust is pretty um, polarized. Mm. So, you know, about 8% by the end of Obama, 8% of Republicans trusted Obama at the end. Um, And I, you know, I imagine this year, probably 5% of Democrats trust Trump or something. Um, So that's another thing going on, polarization. I think a lot of people respond negatively to gridlock. They think the fact that Congress can't, quote, do anything is a reason to look at them as a failure. Um, But I also think that falling uh, economic growth rates um, as compared to what we had in the 50s to the 70s, um, the sense that the younger generations are growing up where they can't really depend on things being cheaper and more available to them over time as previous generations had. Um, sometimes war binds us together. And I think uh, Vietnam did not. Uh, There was a quick uptick in political trust under Bush with uh, 9-11 and the Iraq war, but it quickly declined um, and it's been erased. Um, 
So, you know, it may have been that trust was just very high after the Second World War. Everyone had cooperated. They put their differences aside to destroy genuine evil on the world. Not that we didn't make any mistakes, of course, but just that our enemies were dark and terrible. Um, and the United States wasn't hurt that much by the war. And in the post-war aftermath, things were very, very good economically in the U.S. People had bonded. You know, the, um, you know everyone, as I said in the U.K., everyone did their bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might just be the case that trust was artificially high then, but we don't have measures from before the First World War or the Second World War. So it's hard to know whether we're returning to form. Um, however, um, um, my sense is um, that things are worse because I think polarization is involved. So I imagine at the Civil War, things were pretty low. You know, it was brother against brother, probably not going to trust each other very much. Yeah. So that would just be my guess. I mean, it could have changed. Although in most societies, it's pretty stable. Um, but the United States, I think, has a weird cyclical phenomenon that you don't see as much in other societies like our religiosity levels well so the civil war example to me gives uh, a little bit of hope because obviously we somehow made it back from that and of course now we're right. now we're in a uh, a trough uh, of the cycle but yeah you you say uh, in the book that uh, it seems that you see your task as you say i want to argue that certain key liberal rights create real trust for the right reasons now, a yes. couple of those are really interesting to me. I, much of the book is a discussion of those liberal rights, and so we'd, lo- we'd love to hear you break those down for us. But I was also struck by your use multiple times of the right reasons. And yes. I wonder if you could yes. uh, examine that for us and help us understand what you mean sure, by that. Sure, sure, sure. So, so for your listeners, by liberal, I just, meant pe- I just mean people that are committed to basic freedom and equality, um, and that the state shouldn't take a stance, at least on very controversial issues, like it shouldn't establish a religion. Um, so you can be a classical liberal or an egalitarian liberal, and almost all conservatives are liberal in that broad sense in the U.S. Um, so when I talk about liberal rights, I'm primarily talking about constitutional rights. Um, and uh, two of the first I deal with are the uh, freedom of association um, and uh, the right to private property. Um, and I think that these institutions, uh, do create trust, um, and also trust helps them. There's a kind of nice feedback loop. Um, um, but what they do is they create trust in the, for the right reasons in the sense that they create trust in ways that aren't manipulative and that aren't a matter of propaganda. So for instance, if people are members of, a, um, an association that leads them to, uh, interact with lots of the poor people who are very different from them, they have good experiences that builds trust for the right kind of reasons, right? You see that people are actually trustworthy when you were suspicious of them before or in the market, you know, if you have peaceful exchanges with people, there are many kind of hunter gatherer societies, non-market societies that are much less trusting. Uh, they get along much less well markets, contrary to what critics have said for centuries, actually make people more sociable and cooperative rather than not. Um, and there's a lot of evidence for this now. So it looks like markets can raise trust levels, although trust also helps markets because people exchange more when they trust each other. So the idea is that the way in which trust is formed seems morally appropriate and just. You can raise trust in the way the Chinese national government does, if, of course, the Chinese are telling the truth when they're surveyed, you know, mm-hmm. which they can be extremely brutal. But as long as they keep performance really high, um, people trust them to do the right thing. Although most trust researchers think the Chinese are lying. 
um, about their national government because their trust for local government seems to be pretty low. And that's different than most countries where uh, trust at the local level is um, is higher usually than the federal level. Well, that's kind of interesting because you need, you need a basic level of trust just to answer the question, don't you? That's correct. You know what I mean? To, just to, to say, to feel like you can, I mean, I guess that is also an effect of, of liberal rights. Is that you know there has to be enough of a free speech society that you can say, yeah, I don't trust the government. Whereas I, th- I think in China, right. to say that even to somebody who you're pretty sure is not going to inform on you, it's dangerous. Yep. No, that's I think that's right. And there's there's also this kind of attempt in China that's a little bit like North Korea to make the national government and its leader into a kind of quasi deity. Um, so I think, you know, with Xi trying to have people replace pictures of Jesus in their homes with, with him, um, that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, so there are ways you can create trust that are seeming to be, you know, rights violations. Another way is that um, sometimes authoritarian regimes can have high social trust because there's a very small cadre of people at the top controlling a lot of things. But there's a huge number of black and gray markets and people are interacting a lot in positive ways. So you can get social trust that way. But I mean, obviously, that's not the way you want to get it right with authoritarian government. So what I'm saying is, you know, look, there's a lot of the rights that we have. Trust helps to establish those rights in ways that we think are the, the trust is based in the fact that others are trustworthy and not some sort of lying, manipulation, threat or oppression. Yeah, that makes sense. So you, you make a strong argument that the market economy, and you just said so again, the market economy can create trust and, and for the right reasons. What would you say, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, you know, Patrick Deneen and those integralists who are oh, dear, being yes. more uh, critical of the market and, and how, uh-huh. it, how it has uh, systematically removed people from the f- uh, family relationships and that's been destructive at the, mm-hmm. at the very most local level. H- how would you mm-hmm. respond to, to them and how do you think through that? So my next book is actually going to be on them. Um, so oh, I've been I've been paying a lot of attention. Um, I actually like Deneen more than the full blown integralists um, because he's more of a localist, mm-hmm. um, and they're more revolutionary. I'm not even sure that Vermeule is a. I, mean, I don't even think of him as a conservative. Yeah. Um, whereas I think Deneen is. But I found the book very very under argued empirically. Um, it's more like a pretty nice story. I do think there's been some un fortunate uh, deindustrialization, um, but I don't think it's because of markets. I think what happened was after the Second World War, you had a lot of unionization. You didn't have a lot of international competitors with automobiles. And so a lot of people up here in Northwest Ohio and Michigan, um, you know, you were upper middle class if you were a union member, but eventually people wanted cheaper cars and went over to Japan. Um, and now a lot of those companies have come back, but they go to the deep South like Alabama, where I'm from. Um, so a lot of the reasons things moved out, it wasn't just the market. It was a lot of it was interference with markets. Um, however, I don't want to deny that a central feature of capitalism is creative destruction. Um, there is a great deal of that. Um, the question is, you know, what's the what's the alternative? What I would prefer is to do what a lot of smaller societies like the Scandinavian societies do and do more of what we're already doing, which is by um combining uh, retraining programs, which I think the government could subsidize without running, um, and um, um, uh, also I think that, um, you know, th- there are other other ways of making it easier for people to change professions 
um, which, you know, countries like Sweden and, and Finland and so on, they have to have a lot of free trade because they're too small. And so they have programs that help for help people to transition more than we do. Um, we do have those programs, but um, but I think we could have done we could have done more with that to make those to make those transitions uh, cheaper. One way that we could do that that's very much on the free market side is to make it easier to build homes in cities. It's so expensive to live in, in so many large cities, and there's no reason for it other than very rich people on the left want to keep their housing prices high. Um, in total hypocrisy to their commitment to equality. But it keeps people who lose their jobs in the country from going into the city. Um, and that makes them worse off. It shrinks the division of labor. It's a great cost of growth. Brian Kaplan is writing his whole next book on land reform. But a lot of I expect a lot of market people to start talking about deregulating housing construction in, say, New York City, San Francisco, San Jose, uh, places like that. Yeah, I think um, that's something that you see... Um especially younger people on left and right, both agreeing on is this sort of feeling that those who got there before them are locking them out, you know, by, That's right. by just, it's absolutely true. Too. I mean, I've heard, I've heard people on the right call it neo-feudalism, but then I also hear of uh, <laughs> people on the left, like uh, Matt Iglesias has been talking about this forever. Yep. So it, that, that is, I think one of the, one of the many features of realignment in politics that we might, we might see is, you know, the idea of uh Yes, in my backyard types, YIMBYs, uh, yes. reverse the usual acronym. It also reduces inequality, right? Sure. I mean, the, the, the richer people lose some of their home value. The poor people get higher wages. It's not, it, they, these are policies that can help both the left and the right's values, right? You get more growth and you also get more equality at the same time. There aren't a lot of policies that can do that. Well, sure. And here's where markets would let Americans compete against Americans and you know, workers compete against workers and everybody just have a fair shake at a house. I think where you get some yeah. distrust in, in other levels of government, and I, I wonder what you think about this, is that uh, when you talk about deindustrialization, I think a lot of people see it as sort of a willful blindness as to, to act like we're going to stay out of it. We're not going to pick winners. We're going to have the creative destruction that we all think capitalism requires. But then when we open up free trade with a country that doesn't play by those rules, and that prop, mm -hmm. props up its industries and props up its bad loans. I mean, it's, I'm thinking of China, but there are others. I think that must diminish trust in our national government, especially when both parties were on that free trade train with the third world and, and especially with the communist third world like China or second world, whatever you the, the old definitions don't work anymore. But developing world. There we go. <laughs> whatever we're meant to call them now. I, I, I mean, does that. Uh, yeah, I don't know the, any data on it. Um, it's plausible to me that people see foreign products. They have an image of people losing their job, and they think there are these globalists kind of selling them out. Oddly enough, though, free, free trade agreements are becoming more popular under Trump, although I suspect that will probably change if he mm. loses. Um, he just has a reactivity effect on so many people. Um, yes. Yeah, I mean, I think it can have that effect. Um, but I think also, you know, when when you're able to attend to the fact that a lot of the goods and services you have are cheaper um, and now instead of just buying food, you know, you can do things like, uh, you know, take more trips with your kids or be involved in more activities and things like that. A lot of it really depends on what people do with the fact that they have cheaper goods and services. But no, I mean, you know, periodically people do ring up, oh, you know make the products in America and so on and so forth. And I think that does, I think those views, the protectionism is pretty, is pretty popular because it seems like you're prioritizing Americans mm. 
and I, so I wouldn't be surprised if there's some trust effect um, that comes up with free trade, although I don't know how much people attend to it in large numbers. Um, but it might be part of what got people consider effective government, effective government um, performance, which is one of the main factors that determine um, trust in government. So, so in this era of Trump, uh, it seems like a lot of observers and Kyle and I have discussed this on multiple podcasts, but I think a lot of the conversation as, as it relates to trust, I mean, it really focuses on group conflict, particularly, you know, what does Trump represent in a lot of folks' eyes? Well, someone who's divisive. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. over the summer, we had racial protests and so forth. And yeah. it did strike me that you didn't have much of a conversation. I mean, you did you did mention it in passing. And in fact, in particular, I mean, Trump really keyed in when it comes to public trust. I mean, immigration yeah. and really the ability of uh, groups to uh, integrate, let's say, uh, has... To, it seems like it's a key factor, uh, but and and you do you do say that uh, immigration restrictions preserve political trust, and we know that there's a lot of research on that. Um, yeah, and yeah, and it, yeah, and yeah. as far as the left's concerned, that's unfortunate research. But I mean, it's really showing some of the reasons that Trump has has had so much success, I guess, with with uh, certain groups, and you know, a lot of the conversations, white working class versus uh, people of color, and so forth, and. I wondered how you see that, and I'm and I'm, I am kind of interested why you kind of left that out. Did, did you think that wasn't important, or, or uh... so the difficulty? There's there's a couple of things I left out that I didn't want to leave out. One was federalism, where I was, you know, there was some evidence that lower local um, government are trusted more, but there just wasn't enough data for me to do it. If the book got too much longer, Oxford was going to keep jacking up the price, so <laughs> I had to make hard choices. Um, um, because, you know, you can get it with their discounts at 25 bucks now. And I wanted to keep it affordable mm. because the previous book was not my previous book was not um, very, that affordable. I also wanted to talk about immigration um, because I do think it's it's difficult, especially when large numbers of people come in that are very uh, both uh, different in appearance, um, but also different linguistically. It looks like the linguistic differences are the real tripwire in some countries. It seems to differ. It seems like appearance May matter more in the U.S., whereas um, linguistic difference may matter more, say, in Australia. But people attune to certain differences, and um, then they feel like they don't know people, they don't know what norms they follow, they don't know what's safe and what isn't safe, and that just that can hurt trust, just because people don't know the other culture well enough to know when they can rely on them and why, and they can't even understand what they're saying, and that just makes it harder for trust to form. Um, and I do think, and this will make me sound more conservative and, um, which is fine, but I mean, I do, I do think it can help, um, if the government provides certain kind of incentives for, um, uh, people to learn the language and so on. And I mean, there's a lot of European countries that don't do way more than we do, um, as far as that. And, you know, most, most liberal democratic countries have more immigration restrictions. We do on skilled labor on unskilled labor, although they often have less unskilled labor, which is one of the ways we're just leaving money on the table. seems pretty silly to me. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I do defend the open society, but I don't go all in for open immigration and it is a tension in the book. I, but I wanted to follow the data where it goes. If you have a lot of immigration really quickly from countries with that are very different cultures, you are very likely to, your liberal democratic institutions will take a little bit of a hit because people are going to start voting for populists to keep them out. 
So that's one of the reasons it's important to have a modest level of immigration where uh, people can uh, adjust uh, more quickly and there are incentives to adjust. Um, you know, I think with the Democrats have to be careful because um, Trump is doing better with Hispanic and black men than most of them would like. And my suspicion is over time, enough Hispanics will be here to where the, even the older generations are starting to identify as white. Um, just like, you know, the Irish and Italians can't identify as white mm -hmm. and they don't have a total grip on them. I mean, it's like, what is it like two or 3% of Latinos use Latinx, yeah. you know, as their preferred. Yeah. No one says that in real life. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, um, I think the left thinks they have a hold on, on these, uh, a lot of these Hispanic immigrants, but if the Republicans can get out there and say, Hey, you're super Catholic and we, we want to get out there and be pro natalist and like support you having larger families, like plenty of countries like in Eastern Europe are doing. And, and, you know, so we're going to emphasize, uh, the social issues. We're going to be more conservative. We're going to fight the woke stuff. Um, and we're going to help make it easier for you to, to have and raise your children. I mean, I think that could be really good for the conservative movement because I think that the white working class and the uh, Hispanic working class actually have a lot in common. Um, and if the GOP could figure out a way to stress those things, to, to create more similarity, I think they could build a pretty powerful winning coalition. I, I just, the Democrats all think they've got a lock on these new voters, just like they think they have a lock on Puerto Rico for two Democratic senators that they make it a state. And that's just not obvious. Yep. I mean, Latino, Latina, however you want to say it, immigrants from different parts of the world, but Mexico, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, these are very religious societies. And that means that the GOP can have a natural advantage with them because of the way the elite left talks about religion and how it regards people of faith um, with uh, suspicion and misunderstanding. Um, and oftentimes condescension. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I think that there's a lot the GOP can do and if Trump loses, I think, you know, I think there may be more of an attempt to reach out because I, I actually think a lot of Hispanics who felt like they came here by the rules or that their parents here came by the rules aren't, uh, especially happy with the, the situation. And so, you know, we'll see where Trump's numbers are, but he beat Romney, I think on, on Hispanic, uh, votes. He didn't do as well as George W. Bush, but he may do even better this time, even if he loses, because he loses uh, the white suburbs. Yeah, I think he's. I think he's building that coalition you're talking about, uh, sort of despite himself, and that maybe somebody yeah. who's more skillful at articulating those points might might even do better. I mean, we talked in our. We're recording this on November first, so by the time you hear this episode, yeah. we may well, hopefully, will know the winner, and we'll see if any of this worked. But, um, yeah. we talked on the previous episode about where where uh, where they go from here and how Marco Rubio is doing exactly some of those sort of things you're talking about. Um, yeah. I think he was one of the ones who co-sponsored doubling the child tax credit. Other That's other right. Pro it was really helpful to us with three young kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, Corey and I both have children and certainly appreciate that. And so do a lot of our listeners. Um, yeah. It's, that's, that is definitely a sort of pro-natalist move that you, that could cut across race. I mean, everybody has kids, so it also cut really deep into the standard left-wing criticism that uh, that people on the right are only pro-birth and not pro-child. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you could make more consistent pro-child policy, like that's why I like the American Solidarity Party is because, you know, they're, they're more uniformly pro-life throughout. Um, that would, I think, undermine a great deal of the left's argument is if 
the right really came out with systematic policies to just be as pro-child as they could be. And from a libertarian perspective, people may not like the uh, interference, but libertarians love having more people around because they love the division of labor. They know that people are, for the most part, brains, not mouths. They add more than they take. Um, and so, you know, if we have policies that, you know, increase the population growth rate dramatically, um, then uh, it's kind of hard for them to complain. I mean, they will because I know the libertarian movement, but um, nonetheless. So, so one of those pro-family policies you talked about was uh, Brazil's Bolsa Familia. That was That's correct. That was, uh, I think, uh, Lula da Silva brought in a few years ago and sort of totally redid their welfare system. Maybe um, mm-hmm. could you talk a little bit about why that might fit your criteria for a trust-building type uh, yeah. welfare state? Yeah, I can. So Bolsa Familia was a program where mothers are given a cash transfer under two conditions. First, that their children are vaccinated. Uh, and second, that they send them to school. And it seems like it's reduced poverty dramatically, uh, great poverty in Brazil, um, and enough so to where about 40 countries have, have copied uh, the different programs. Um, it's a pretty, in terms of, you know, your listeners skeptical of the welfare state, it's a pretty small transfer and it's for the very, very poor. A lot of people that are very poor in Brazil that may live really far away from any large cities. Um, the kids are healthier and they're smarter. Um, and, you know, it's really hard to think that that's a bad thing. Um, mm-hmm. In the U.S., you know, you have a lot higher vaccination rates and a lot higher school attendance. So a similar policy, you know, I don't think would do as much good here because we have other policies that promote it. Um, but yeah, that's the kind of thing that I think there's a lot of good data on. In fact, I have a buddy who worked at the World Bank for a while and I said to him, Hey Ryan, what's the, like the best attested to welfare state program that is out there? And he said, Bolsa Familia. So I looked at the case in the book that I thought was the easiest sell. I think it's really hard to make a clear case for, um, really large, extensive, coercive forms of redistribution. Um, but these kinds of little uh, benefits, I think they help a lot of people feel more secure. And if they do things like make children healthier, then they're going to help economic growth as well. So they're ways of producing economic security and economic growth, which I think both factor into trust in government. So that's interesting. What is the interplay then with, because you have a pretty solid statement where you say societies with a high level of social trust are more supportive of redistrib- <laughs> redistribution <yeah>. uh, policies. <laughs> Yeah. What's the what's the direction of uh, of causation there, and and what's the interplay with that, and sort of are are people more trusting because of the redistributive uh, policies, or they feel trust, so they feel comfortable with uh, redistribution, and and this actually relates to the the prior question I had about immigration too, and sort of you know ethnic diversity and having trust in your neighbors, because I, I think there is it seems like there has been a good deal of research showing that when people feel like a social cohesion, cohesiveness with, uh, with people that they uh, are familiar with, then they're more likely to be giving. So, yeah. Anyway, how, how do you think yeah, of I mean, that and explain it to us? The curious thing is that on my view and from the two economists I write with, we think that social trust is almost always a cause and seldom an effect. Um, and that we, it's actually one of the great mysteries of social science, how social trust forms and one of our next projects. And we're looking to some grants now are to study social trust formation. 
but it looks like there's some preliminary evidence that high social trust does a couple of things. First, it increases economic growth because people feel more likely and at ease of exchanging with each other and less worried about less worried about fraud. So it helps economic growth. It also helps in a second way, which is that people who are more trusting um, feel less of a need to regulate each other. So Sweden's the highest trust country in the world. They un underwent a massive privatization and deregulation uh, in the last few decades. Um, uh, Andreas Berger is one of the guys I co-authored with. He wrote a history of Swedish public policy, and almost nobody knows the details of what's going on there. They've undergone policy shifts that are way more massive than anything we've been able to handle. So they started off smaller government. They came to the welfare state in the middle of the 20th century. They got it big. They took over a bunch of industries. Didn't work very well. People said this didn't work very well, and so they privatized a bunch of stuff. They kept a lot of social services. So they were able to deregulate, they privatized, they have a public school um, voucher system. Um, but yes, they have a lot of taxes and redistribution. So on the one hand, they don't feel like they need to monitor and control each other. They have a decent growth rate, but they also have a lot of redistribution because they don't mind as much because they aren't as worried that people are going to waste the transfer. But the way they redistribute is quite different than what we do. So Andreas would say to me that in Sweden, we redistribute from the top 90% to the bottom 90%. Hey, so so I, their tax structure. Yep. Sorry to cut you off. Can I follow up on that? Because yeah. you, had, you just made a really interesting point, which you said, when a society has more trust, there's less need to regulate one another. And this yeah. is something I wrote down in my notes too, because uh, you, you use surveys for your, for your uh, quantitative data. And yeah. I, I also wonder if from a qualitative standpoint, the fact that we have so freaking many rules in our society, yes. so many regulations, yeah. a massive Leviathan administrative state, does does that reflect at all on our on our trust level, or how would you see that? Yeah, I mean it's 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 complicated because it's not clear how it affects trust because it is so complicated. Like a lot of people just don't understand it, and so it's not clear if people are updating very much. Um, so you know, if you were to deregulate a whole lot, it's not clear people would 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 understand that unless it was a very large amount it was conveyed pretty simply well so i'm um, sorry to cut you off again but uh, i mean to say yeah. is it evidence that we lacked trust uh, oh i see what you're saying i think so i mean i think sometimes for public choice type reasons bureaucracies grow on their own and they just add lots of administrative stuff but um i think the reason that people tolerate it is because they think other people need to be controlled and so, you know, like, for instance, you know, Swedish politicians can say, hey, let's cut the corporate tax rate by 20 percent. That will help us. And other people will say, you know, I don't think that's going to work, but it's OK. Let's give it a shot. Whereas in the U.S., if you say let's cut the corporate tax rate by 20 percent. Monster, you <laughs> you oligarch, yeah. you this is an apocalypse. This our whole democracy will be destroyed. I mean, that kind of catastrophizing is a feature of a low trust society, right? I mean, it's just mm -hmm. like someone else proposes something and you just think they're inhuman. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they have a lower corporate tax rate. They have more free trade than we do. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the problems with a low trust society. Is it, even if people come to disagree more, um, they attribute that disagreement to vice or some sort of failure right, on yeah, behalf of yeah. the other person. Um, and, I, and it's interesting to think because I think the U.S. populace is less um, uh, friendly to uh, the welfare state than Swedes are. 
And I think if they became tr more trusting, I think in one way they would become more okay with redistribution, but I think they would also wonder whether we needed all of this control in the first place. And so I think administrations could get away with more uh, regulation, but um, unfortunately, you know, as I say in the book, there's just a lot we still don't know. It's exciting to be a philosopher and budding social science person, budding, I mean that, uh, you know, with all the stuff that we're still learning, um, because I think this is extremely relevant, particularly, I think, um, for all sides of the political spectrum. The left needs trust to get their welfare state. The right needs trust to get markets. I think conservatives just naturally care about social cohesion mm -hmm. um, and the empirical stuff on trust is just really important for all of that. So I think, you know, everyone benefits from more trust. A lot of libertarians think, oh, well, government isn't very trustworthy, so it's irrational to trust them. Um, but I actually think that's kind of short sighted to see things in that kind of coarse grained terms. I think that libertarians need to learn to trust in a more targeted and subtle way given what the alternatives are. Like we spent so much time discrediting the Fed. Well, okay, well, so like, what's the alternative? What what actually happens when people trust the Fed less? Oh, well, you get probably get more fiscal policy. Don't get a gold standard. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, mm -hmm. it, I mean, that's the, the irony in targeting this trust is that you don't necessarily get less government. You may just get a replacement. Right. Um, and so I think that... Um, you know, we have to be more careful. It's also the case, I think, that there's a kind of therapeutic effect of trust where when you trust people more, people feel like, oh, man, you know, people are going to think I lied and I really disappointed them. And I don't think politicians are even close to mostly sociopaths. Most of the politicians I've heard about, they're so desperate to be loved. Um, yeah. They're so needy in terms of approval that if they feel like they were trusted, it would motivate them. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I, I think that's, uh, yeah, I think that the, um, yeah, it's less Game of Thrones and more, more Veep, you know, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's just, a, I, I think we, we imagine that there's a sort of, you know, arch sociopath pulling all the strings like, like a godfather, but it's, it's not, yeah. no, they want approval. No. And I think, I think what you say about trust is right. Most people want it outside of the, the full blown objectivist who even the libertarian yeah. looks askance at. Oh, and looks askance at libertarians. The filthy hippies of the right is Rand Paul. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. They like charity and other things like that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. how do we, um, and you, you address this in the book, and I, I'd like to say how we get, you, you talk about how these liberal rights practices are what builds trust. But you're also saying you don't, you have not defended liberalism as an ideology. And right. maybe your critics would say you can't have one without the other. So how do we how do we get a liberal um, a liberal rights practice regime without setting up the sort of continually growing liberalism that Deneen warns against? Yeah, I mean, Deneen just kind of asserts that there's a correlation between a liberal ethos and liberal institutions, um, and I think that's actually pretty hard to show. Um, it is true that there does seem to be some correlation, but we've been pretty liberal for a while. And I don't think, I mean, I mean, what I advocate in the book are basic liberal constitutional rights and the practices that arise from them. Like robust freedom of association is like not, I don't think is something that makes people like fall in love with autonomy or anything. Mm -hmm. And I actually think Deneen would agree with me on that. Like more association involvement isn't going to make us more like autonomy addicts. 
Um, some markets may. Um, I'll just I'll just concede some of that to him. Um, I think uh, more democratic participation and more parliamentary government, um, like like more rule of law at the federal level, I, you know, constitutional governance. I don't think that has the effect. So you just you kind of have to go institution by institution. Um, to see whether the thesis is plausible. And I think it's most plausible when you look at certain kinds of social liberties, like, for instance, people's attitudes about various sexual mores and so on. And you'll, anyone who reads the book will know that I don't talk about that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would love for Deneen to go out and make an empirical argument that these are all interconnected causes, that you can't have free speech without free love, that you can't have... Um, free markets um, without uh, secularism of some kind, um, because you know I'm just I'm just not sure it's true. I mean I think that the issue there is so Deneen and Vermeule and uh, and uh, Gladden Papinall um, and um, Philip Munoz have this talk on YouTube. It was kind of a little debate, and Munoz was making the point that um, a lot of what's going on is that these folks are are mixing liberalism and progressivism. And assuming that progressivism is just like a, the hideous final form of liberalism. Um, and, um, you know, I, their arguments for it, to me, are just not not very compelling. Um, I think that progressivism is a kind of import from Europe um, in the late 19th century um, that came about in a pretty systematic and direct way in terms of institutional capture. Um, so I, I see progressivism as a kind of invading force. I don't see it as inherent to Anglo liberalism, maybe continental liberalism, which I think is different because it was anti-clerical, mm. um, in ways that Anglo liberalism was not. Um, and it's not like the U S was just kind of minding its own business in terms of its culture in the late 19th century, but you know, there, there were massive effects from having large scale movement of, uh, European train was American academics. It's basically what was going on. This is book Atlantic crossings about it, where it was cheaper under the Kaiser for Americans to get, you know, like a PhD, uh, over than it was to get an advanced degree in the U S. So you had mm-hmm. an influx of American intellectuals that went to Germany, um, or picking up Marxism and other kinds of ideas and brought them back. And they've successfully reproduced themselves academically for about five generations. And the view continues to morph. Um, and I think these are folks that set out uh, to be against Christianity. That were set, they were bringing the higher criticism that took over all the left wing, uh, took over all the Protestant denominations, and led to the splits. Um, mm-hmm. They imported a lot of ideas that got stuck at the elite level, and unlike in Europe, they didn't filter down very well. Um, so I think there's a, a Christian Smith, who's a um, sociologist at Notre Dame, uh, has documented this in his book, The Secular Revolution. Um, so I actually think when you get into the nitty gritty of the history, looking at liberalism as this kind of big coarse, creeping cause, is actually not the kind of sophisticated ideological analysis that one needs to understand American history. You know, I prefer to look at ideological factors as there being kind of three in modernity in the West. There's conservatism, which is the most variable across societies. There's liberalism, which is a movement for freedom and equality. And then there's socialism, which is a, a, a distinct form. And they mix and match and combine and split. And what we have is, in most countries, a majority liberal socialism hybrid and a minority liberalism conservatism hybrid. 
Um, so when I do ideological analysis, I do it a lot finer grain than someone like me does. Notice he only talks about liberalism as pretty much the only active ideological force, but that's just not very plausible. I think that there are other active ideological forces and they interact in lots of interesting ways. Um, so I just think the analysis is too crude. It's not like there's nothing that's true in there, particularly when he goes after the educational elites in there complete hypocrisy with respect to saying they're for the weak, but I'll actually being willing to do anything that would help them mm-hmm. or fundamentally change things. Good stuff. All right. Well, I hate to be that guy to put a, put an end to the party, but we're getting late. <laughs> do you have any closing thoughts for yeah. us? I think that um, for many of your listeners, it is um, one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is to draw a connection between trust and polarization. And I think we all know that certain kinds of polarization are destructive. And then what I'm trying to do in the book is at least begin the conversation where if we can increase trust levels, we may be able to make polarization less destructive. For instance, if we disagree, but we trust each other, that's a very different situation than if we disagree and we don't trust each other. Um, so I think that's uh, some, something to consider. If we want more comedy, if we want more union, uh, if we want more peace and tranquility in our society, we have to start thinking carefully about how to get back some social trust. Yeah. Um, so yeah, between that and just sending y'all to the website for the book and being interested in what you think, um, I'm just uh, pleased to have been here and would love to follow up by email if people have questions. Um, it's just, uh, you can just email me at kevinvalue at gmail.com and I'd love to continue the conversation. Excellent. What's the website? Kevin Vallier, K-E-V-I-N, B as in Victor, A-L-L-I-E-R.com. Just that simple. And I have a blog called Reconciled, um, where I talk about theological and economic and philosophical topics. Great. And we'll put the links of those in our in our show notes. Facebook, Twitter, all that. Yeah. Great. All right. That's Kevin Vallier. Thanks so much for joining us. Catch us next time.